Good morning, Zoe. What a wonderful service we've had this far. I hope you've enjoyed worship and prayer. I certainly have. And of course, as you know, if you've been following us or if you've been a part of our church, you know we've been fasting for 21 days. And this is our final day. And I can speak for myself. I've been refreshed. And I trust you have as well. And guess what? There's more. So I'm going to encourage you. And I was up in, in prayer this morning. And the Lord just shared with me some things about what we need to do moving forward. Right? So we had the fast, and now what, what do we do next? What did the fast prepare us for? And the Lord put some things in my heart that I want to share with you, and I'm going to share with you on Instagram. So uh, many of you are subscribed already, but I'm in, first of all, I encourage you to, to subscribe to all of our social media handles. But there's some things, really short things, that I'm going to share with you regarding where we go from here with how the Lord has conditioned us with the fast. So I'll be sharing that with you. So, so definitely subscribe to that. And secondly, several, several weeks ago, we started our Bible survey course, and it was set up for people to sign up and take the course. Well, we've been doing so, so wonderful in the course in terms of the things we've been discussing, and much of the conversation has gone beyond even the textbook material. So at this point, we're going to encourage anyone who wants to simply listen to the lectures that we have. You're encouraged to do that. We're actually going through the entire Bible and just kind of surveying each book of the Bible, among other things. And if you want to be a part of that, you're welcome, even if you aren't officially trying to take the course. So just go on to our website site at zcf.org, and you can register for that, and you're welcome to join us. With that said, I'm going to open up with a word of prayer and get straight into the Word. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you have a word for your people, and I'm humbled that you've chosen me to, to share it with them, Lord God. And I pray that Holy Spirit, you help us to go deeper into who you are, go deeper into the scripture and open up my mouth so that I may speak your truth, God. Open up our eyes so that, Jesus, we can see you more clearly. Lord, open up our hearts so that we can have the heart of the Father God. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. All right. So as you know, uh, this is Christmas in January, gift unwrapping secrets from a prison inmate part four. And of course, this is a, a, a title that is really just talking about the way we're looking at the book of Corinthians. I'm sorry, Ephesians. And the, 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 the focus on it, of course, is the fact that Paul, who was a prison inmate when he was writing this letter, is expounding on the gift we have in Jesus. The gift we have in Jesus. And as we've been emphasizing week after week, is that Jesus is often a gift that gets left unopened. Jesus is often a gift that gets left unopened, especially by Christians, because we take him for granted. We assume to know already. We assume to know, well, that's Jesus and this is what he did, but we're so far removed from the revelation of who he is and what he extends to us because of what he did on the cross. And Paul expounds on this. And it, it is important for us to be deep into this because this is what is going to sustain us as we move forward. Because trust me, 2020 was what it was, but we're going to experience more things in the future. I don't know what they are, but whatever they are, we're going to need to be anchored in Jesus to navigate those things. And there's gifts and there's anointing and there's grace that is offered through Christ Jesus that will help us to endure anything that comes our way. So as you know, last week we continued our series on Paul's letter to Ephesians. 
We titled it Christmas in January because the letter highlights the gift that Jesus is in January and every day of the year. A true Christian knows that Christmas is actually every day, and that's not just a cliche. We actually need to live that. We need to live with the joy of knowing that every day there's a gift waiting for me. In Lamentations, Jeremiah writes, Lord, your mercies are new every morning. Every morning, great is your faithfulness. So every time we wake up, we should get up as if it is Christmas morning and there's gifts waiting for us under the tree. I've been enjoying, especially during the fast, uh, I, I've, I've gotten into a routine of more or less getting up at around five or so in the morning, and I treat it as my Christmas gift. I enjoy spending time with my heavenly Father, and he'll have a word or he'll have something in Scripture, or he'll just have a comforting peace to offer me each morning, and I appreciate that. And that's something we can all have in Christ Jesus. Christmas is every day for the believer. The subtitle is Gift Unwrapping Secrets from a, from a Prison Inmate because Paul is in prison while he writes the letter. In one of the most undesirable places imaginable, Paul helps us unwrap the supernatural gift we have in Christ. This is what Ephesians is doing, especially in the first half of the letter. It is, Paul is helping us to unwrap this precious gift we have in Jesus. However, what is clear early in the letter is that the wrapping paper is not around the gift, but around our eyes. Paul prays that in this letter, that the eyes of our heart would be open, that we would understand several things, but all of them that are focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Accessing the gift that Jesus is requires that our spiritual eyes be opened. So, with that said, I'm going to, again, touch on the cultural context of Ephesus. In, in, brief, uh, in brief, but I'm going to bring out a couple of things that will help us to understand the letter. And I'm reviewing a little bit of the cultural context we reviewed for the last couple of weeks. And we talked about how God is our heavenly paterfamilias. Paterfamilias is a Latin term, okay? It's a Latin term, and the Romans spoke Latin. And we learned that in Rome, the paterfamilias was the oldest male in the family, often the father or grandfather. He had legal ownership of everyone and everything in the household. And I know that sounds strange to us today in the 21st century. We live differently. We have a different way of organizing our society. That was the way of life then, certainly in Rome. And a household did not just include what we today call a nuclear family, but all persons who were supported by the resources of the Potter Familias. And so here's where it gets interesting. I want to draw attention here to this because, again, as we said last week, Paul is using the language of the culture, the language of Roman family law, and implicitly comparing it to the way in which our Heavenly Father relates to us. And it's, he's, in fact, it's very, it's very useful because, of course, people in this time would have understand the understood the dynamics. Let's look at this here. If you were married to a potter familias, you were related to your husband in three ways. You were a virtual daughter. Okay, you were a virtual daughter. What do I mean by that? Legally, you had the same status as your children. Again, I know this is different. This is like, well, how could they live that way? This is a different time and place. And friends, we, 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 we don't want to be too judgmental 
of a different culture. Because I'm telling you, 100 years from now, people are going to judge our culture. <laughs> They're going to say, how did they, why did they do that? Right? So, so, so understand that, that God reveals things to us, and he chose these ancient periods of time uh, as, the, as the time periods to reveal who he was and, the, and create the context for Scripture. So stay with us as we do this, okay? So if you were married to a pot of familias, you were a virtual daughter. Legally, you had the status of your children. Two, you were his wife. And three, you were a virtual slave. And what do I mean by that? Because legally, your husband owned you. He owned the whole household, right? That was the, the nature of it, okay? But, but check, check, check this out, though, right? God is related to us in three ways as well, right? God is our father. God is our husband. And I know that might sound strange to you, right? But if you look at Scripture and you look at the analogies, God uses the analogy of being married to Israel. God uses the analogy of being married to the church, which Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians. And so when we say that God is our husband, we're not married to him individually, but collectively, collectively, the church is the bride of Christ. And then thirdly, God is our master, okay? God is our master. We serve him. And certainly, again, we have negative connotations with mastery and slavery today, of course, because of the, uh, the, the Atlantic slave trade and the African slave trade. Those images are in our mind. But if God is the one who's the master, it's a slavery that brings freedom. Jesus says that you can't turn, serve two masters. You know what that means? You're going to have a master one way or another. It's just a matter of which one. I'd rather my master be God in terms of my master being my flesh, instead of my master being my addictions, instead of my master being the Satan, instead of my master being things that harm me or hurt me. God is a master that that, 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 that loves us and cares for us and takes care of us. Again, these are concepts that in our 21st century society, in American culture, where we really deify individual freedom. We make individual freedom the ultimate, right? So anything that defies my individual freedom must be evil. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. Let's look at God is speaking to us here in this passage. So you see the analogy. You have the potterfamilias. If you were married to a potterfamilias, you were virtual daughter, wife, virtual slave. In relationship to God, we are a child of God, right? He's our father. Collectively, the church is the bride of Christ, and also God is our master. Now, as the popular song says, God is a good, good father. Guess what? He's also a good, good husband and a good good master. Now, from, the, from before the beginning, and I'm just, just kind of clarifying some of the things we read in Ephesians chapter 1, from before the beginning, God planned, God planned for us to share in the blessing of his goodness. Okay, we read about how he chose us, how he adopted us, how he predestined us, and all of that was around the fact that God is a good God, and he wanted us to share in that goodness. As one expression of his goodness, God gave us dominion over the earth, making us legal stewards over his creation. Okay? So he gave us dominion. He, he created Adam and Eve. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, and he gave him dominion to be stewards 
over his goodness, the goodness in his creation. We lost all of this after Satan deceived us, seducing us to sin. By default, our inheritance fell to Satan. Now, I'm explaining some of this because I'm going to, I'm providing a little bit more background on some of the key terms we talked about, particularly the term of redemption. We talked about redemption last week. We ended it. We were talking about Ruth. We were talking about Leviticus. And I was explaining that redemption should not just, just be a, a, a religious term, but we should understand the cultural context, the historical context, so that when you say you've been, so that when we say you've been redeemed, it has new significance to you. So I'm I'm, I'm, I'm unpacking some of this history here because Paul uses the word redemption in that first chapter of Ephesians. So going back to to the fact that Satan deceived us, he seduced us to sin. By default, our inheritance fell to Satan. So check this out. Satan became a squatter. Satan became a squatter, okay? And many of us know what a squatter is. In fact, they have I think television shows and reality shows that focus on squatters and what have you, those are people who illegally occupy property. It's not theirs. And I remember I was watching something, not, a show not too long ago, uh, and it was featuring a squatter. And I'm telling you, you can go on vacation for a month, and you can come back to your house, and there's another family living in your house. And guess what? By law, you can't kick them out. Not right away. You've got to go through a legal process to get rid of a squatter. And squatters are interesting. They will, they will sit there and act as if it's their house, as if they paid for it, as if they've been living there. And based upon the law, because the law wants to protect renters and they don't want landlords to abuse renters and, 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 and where landlords can just kick people out of their property uh, without any kind of reasonable means of a reasonable way of doing that. They have laws to protect renters, so those, so those laws that protect renters, renters protect squatters. And they can come and occupy your house, and you've got to go through a legal process to get them out. That's the devil. The devil is a squatter. And as a squatter, Satan not only assumed rulership of the world, but also became our illegitimate spiritual father, husband, and master. Scripture talks about this, the Satan being the father of lies, and Jesus talks about people being children of the devil. And, of course, when God uses the analogy of being married to Israel, he talks about how Israel cheated on Jehovah by serving other gods. And, of course, when we serve other gods, that's just the way that Satan gets worshipped. So, in other words, Satan became a kind of illegitimate husband to Israel and, of course, also master. Satan seeks to be our master. Now, as we know by in the natural, squatters have rights, right? Even though they may possess a property illegitimately, there is a legal process required to evict them. Biblically, the process of restoring lost property is called redemption. Redemption. Right? We talked last week about in the Levitical laws, it said that God had given Israel land, and each tribe had a particular plot of land. If you read the book of Joshua, you'll see that, that Joshua is allotting each tribe certain kinds of land. And if this tribe, and if, 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 this, if this land uh, uh, belongs to, say, the tribe of Benjamin, that was Benjamin's land. It was really the Lord's land, but the land he gave to Benjamin. And the, the Levitical law said, well, You can sell the land to someone else, but within a 50-year period, it has to go back 
to the one it was originally assigned to. In other words, it can't forever be out of the possession of the one who inherited it. That was the law. Now, you could buy it back yourself, or you can have someone uh, in your family buy back the land, or what they, they would have what they call the year of Jubilee, and, every, and that would happen every 50 years. And during that year, any property that was sold away from the person who inherited it had to go back to the original person who inherited it. That's redemption. That's what Jesus did. When he died for us, he redeemed us. And not only did we come back to him because we are his property, but he restored everything Satan had took away from us. Redemption. He redeemed our inheritance. Now, Going back to Ephesians chapter 1, let's look at some of these words we talked about, Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. We said that we are blessed, we are chosen, we are predestined, we are adopted, we are sons, we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are wealthy, we are wise, we are heirs, we are sealed. And we only got to the word redeemed last week. And I want to move on to forgiven, wealthy, wise, heirs, and sealed. But before I do, I want to clarify some concepts we talked about the terms predestined and chosen, and I want to say a little bit more about that because the matter of predestination is a matter of great significance to many people, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but just a little bit to bring some clarity. Uh, It's difficult because if I spend too much time on the concept of predestination, I won't finish the series on Ephesians, but I recognize that I need to provide some clarity to help you understand this concept, at least the way that we at this church kind of approach the concept of predestination. So with that, I'm going to say this. A word on chosen and predestination. These are important words. So there are two schools of thought on how people think about these concepts of mainly the the concept predestination. And one emerging from the tradition of John Calvin, where we get the concept, the, the notion of Calvinism, right? And the other out of the tradition of Jacobus Arminius, where we get Arminianism, right? And I'm gonna quote a few concepts from John Piper, and he's certainly, he's a Calvinist, but he has actually done a great job at distinguishing, like, what's the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism? And if you were to kind of identify where our church stands, we're from the Arminian tradition, if you would, if, if, you, if you were. So let me explain that, because I have to, again, I have to say that, because it, that, that affects the way you think about the concept of predestination. So I'm quoting John Piper, and he says this, the key difference between Calvinism and Arminianism is really in how we get saved. How we move from a condition of spiritual unbelief to a condition of heartfelt belief in Christ. Calvinists believe that God must produce in us the decisive desire for Christ. In other words, how did you decide to come to Jesus? It was all God. And by that, it was like your decision to serve Jesus wasn't the factor. It was God having chosen you beforehand and the Holy Spirit uh, compelling you to make the choice. It wasn't you. You didn't create the decisive action to make the choice. This means that, that God made the choice that led to our salvation. Our will had nothing to do with it. Okay, and the reason why, well, there's a lot of reasons why people come to this conclusion, but one is they're they're, they're really committed to the concept of grace. And if grace means no works, that means not even your will is involved and you come into Jesus. It's all grace. 
and God has chosen beforehand who he's going, who he's elect or who he's going to save and who he's not going to save. Your decision has nothing to do with it. Now, on the other hand, Arminians believe that we produce the decisive desire for Christ. This means that God chose who he knew in, it, who he knew in advance would choose him. He chose the people he already knew would choose him. In other words, foreknowledge doesn't mean that he forced you to make the choice. That's the idea behind Arminianism. So, but let me clarify how we believe here. And really, I, 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 I'll be honest with you. I, I, I don't see any reason to think that there is a combination of the two, which is why I say God's power my choices. We emphasize the ability for people to make choice here, in part because we're very practical. We're very practical, and we believe that God wanted to reciprocate. He wanted his love to be reciprocated, and how is that love reciprocated if we're not choosing him out of our volition, okay? So for me, predestination and human free will, they both exist, and the logistics of their coexistence is a mystery we accept by faith. I don't know how all of that works out logistically, just like I don't know how the Trinity works out logistically. I believe in it. I believe that we serve one God and there are three persons, but I can't tell you how that all works in terms of the physics of their existence. We accept that God is both one God and three distinct persons, but the physics of this truth are a mystery that we must accept by faith, and that's how I look at predestination and free will. I can say a lot more about that. I'm not going to do it today because my focus is on Ephesians, but I just wanted to kind of give that kind of concept to you so that we can address it briefly. And at some other time, we can get into more depth about this concept of predestination. All right, so we're going to go back to Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. We had talked about redemption, of course, and we're going to read this here. Ephesians 1, 7. It says, in him... We have redemption through his blood. Now you should understand what redemption is. We talked about Ruth. We talked about Leviticus. We talked about squatters, okay? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Okay, so going back to in him we have redemption. So we understand the fact that Jesus is our redeemer. Last week we talked about Boaz and how Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi. And just like Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi, Jesus redeemed us. Boaz married Ruth, and Jesus is, I should, probably the best term would say is to say that he's betrothed or engaged to the church. Okay, I'm going to talk about that a little bit here. Okay, so Jesus is our redeemer. He's restored us back to our original inheritance. We are restored back to him as, as we are his inheritance. Now, What's interesting about this is Jesus is restoring us, but he's, he's reclaiming his inheritance, but it was his to begin with. So we know, in, we know that he and his father already owned the earth and everything in it. Psalms 24, 1 says this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So God owns the earth as God, but what he wanted to do in redeeming us, he wanted to redeem it as a human being. Remember I told you that the laws of redemption in Leviticus, one of the ways that you could redeem property was that if you were the next of kin, 
to someone who owned the property, you could redeem it for them. So there were three ways to redeem property. One, you could buy it yourself if after you sold it because you needed the money, you became prosperous and you can then buy it back. But the second way, one of the ways, of course, was the year of Jubilee. But the second way was that if you had a relative next of kin to you who could buy the property on your behalf. When Jesus became human, he became our next of kin. He became related to us. In fact, I would submit to you that Jesus is still human. He's still God. He's all God, but he still has his humanity. So when he redeems the earth, he already owned it as God, but he wanted to redeem it as a human. Why? So that we can be brought back into the redemption process. Jesus went through the legal process of securing his household back, not just as God, but as a human. As a human, Jesus was next of kin to us. In fact, Hebrews calls him our brother. He's our big brother. Hence, he had the legal right to redeem our inheritance. And boy, Satan tried to work him. He said, you don't have to do all that. Just worship me. And I'll give you the world. But Jesus knew if he did that, all would be lost. Satan was trying to deceive him, that he would tempt even Jesus. Jesus went through the process. Why? Because he wanted humanity to share in the inheritance. And for that to happen, he had to come as our kin. Like Boaz, Jesus was not only kin, but he also committed to marry us, right? He committed to marry us. He married Ruth. He was kin to Naomi. In biblical times, when you committed to marry someone, it was called a betrothal, okay? Basically, an engagement, a betrothal was similar to our contemporary understanding of engagement. And the main difference between a betrothal and a contemporary engagement is that a betrothal had more of a legal, had a legal force to it. So uh, Mary and Joseph, they were, they were betrothed, right? They were engaged, but today, you know, you can be engaged. And it's just a verbal commitment and a ring. When you were betrothed, there was, a, there was more investment made. There was a legal, it had a legal tie. You weren't married yet, but you were committed, which is why it was such a controversy when Mary became pregnant. Right, because they were betrothed, but they hadn't had sexual relations yet. And so it was like, whoa, how did you get married? How did you get pregnant, Mary? Right, it was, a, it was, a, it was an issue, right? And so, 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 so because, because they were already engaged, right? So, so um, I want to talk a little bit about the way marriages were arranged in biblical times, in New Testament times, because it will help us to understand how the church is betrothed to Christ. Again, I, I'm, not only, I'm not only providing more context to how the relationship between Boaz and Ruth relates to the relationship between Jesus and the church, but this is going to take us back to why the, the issue of forgiveness of our trespasses is so significant. So let me explain to you about this marriage custom in the time of Christ. There was three parts to it. First, a marriage contract was signed by the parents of the bride and the bridegroom. This is, they haven't got married yet. <laughs> this was just the betrothal. This was a contract that was signed, right? So a bride price was paying. Today we would call it a dowry. Uh, the, 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 the wife's uh, or the, the husband would pay it to the, to, to the wife's family, right? And then the betrothal period begins, okay? And again, this was the status that Mary and Joseph had, okay? So Jesus, he became betrothed to us. He didn't pay for us. He didn't, the dowry wasn't in money. It was in his blood. Jesus paid the bride price for us through 
his blood. And that payment of that blood said, look, I'm committed to you. This is why I, have to, I can't just say engagement. I have to pay, say betrothal because the betrothal has legal force. You were invested. You weren't just not backing out because you got cold feet. You were in it. That was the first part. The second part, the second, the second step in the process was a torchlight parade through the streets. And some of this I'm quoting from gotquestions.org. This is a section where they're talking about the marriage ceremony of the Lamb. I have the link there for you, but just to let you know, I'm quoting from them on these steps here, okay? So you would have the betrothal period, and then a year later, there would be a, 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 a kind of a torchlight parade in the streets. And so if you recall the parable of the ten virgins in, in the Scripture, that's what this is referring to, because what would happen is the, the, the husband-to-be, the one who's betrothed, uh, about a year later, he would come back through the streets and he would go get his wife with their, their wedding, with, with, the young, with the young virgins and the maidens, and, they would, and he would get her and they would go back to where his house was. And the idea was that she had to be ready. The wedding party had to be ready because they had to be ready for when the, for when the husband that they were engaged to was going to come and get them. And Jesus talks about this in the parable, about the ten virgins. You had virgins, some of the, you had, you had virgins who weren't ready because their lamps weren't trimmed and burning. They had to keep the lamps on because it was midnight. And you had other virgins who, 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 who were ready. And the virgins who were ready got to go to the wedding party, and the virgins who weren't ready couldn't go. And that is making allusions to, I believe, the rapture. Jesus is going to come and take us away. And he says, be ready. I'm coming for you. I paid for you with my blood, and I'm coming to get my bride. And the Scripture says that he's coming for a church without spot or recall. He's coming for the bride he paid for. He's coming for us. That's what that signifies. Then, of course, the third phase was the marriage supper itself. And this supper could go on for days, but the Bible says that in the book of the Revelation, there's going to be a marriage supper. And let me read that, Revelations 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. He, God is coming for a bride to be clothed in our righteous deeds. We want to live up right before God because he's coming to get us. And he wants to see us in the beautiful, righteous, right deeds. Those things that we do every day that no one can see but the Lord. He's coming for us. In verse 9 it says, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We, he's coming to get us to take us to that supper. As part of this wedding ceremony, our eternal marriage to Jesus. Let me tell you, the marriage to Jesus has far more glory than any marriage you can have on the earth. As wonderful as marriage is, can be on the earth, our marriage to Jesus is far more glorious, and it lasts forever. 
Now, why did I say all this? Because I need to give you a context for when it says the forgiveness of our trespasses. I need to give you a context for that because we kind of read that term and it's like, okay, he's forgiven us of our trespasses. Well, what does that really mean? Well, see, a trespass is an unauthorized crossing of a boundary, intentional or non-intentional. Many of us know of like signs that say no trespassing. You go to someone's house or, you know, you see a neighbor that they're not really friendly to people. They don't, don't touch my lawn. No trespassing. Don't, don't cross this boundary. That's a trespass. People trespass against God because they are indifferent about their relationship with him. But to understand our trespasses, we must look at them within the context of the marriage analogy. You see, sin is an extension of idolatry. So God experiences it as spiritual adultery. When we worship other gods, and we see it certainly in the Old Testament, God basically tells Israel, you're cheating on me with the same kind of emotion that a spouse would have about their spouse cheating on them. In fact, to help Israel understand how much they hurt the Lord, he tells his prophet Hosea, he says, I want you to preach this, but I want you to feel it. So he tells Hosea to marry a prostitute, a woman he knows is not going to be faithful to him. I want you to marry her, and he marries her, and She's faithful to who she is. She goes back and finds other lovers through prostitution. And the Lord wants Hosea to have this experience. So when he talks to his people about cheating on him spiritually, he can speak with the kind of spiritual and emotional intensity that comes from the Lord's heart. This helps Hosea understand how God sees his relationship with his people. So guess what? You know what this means? Jesus became engaged to a whore. He died for us knowing he was marrying a whore. But his love for us is so great that he paid the price for our redemption with the knowledge of our infidelity. And he doesn't just know it, he sees it. He feels it. He's aware of it. And yet he loves us so much, he says, I want to marry you. So he's forgiven our trespasses. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 14 puts this in context because he's using this language here, and he's speaking to, if you're familiar with the history of Israel, after the, the, the reign of Solomon the king, the, the, the nation of Israel was split into two nations, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, and both of them had their time really being involved in spiritual infidelity, both of them. And so he's speaking to them, and he's inviting them that even though they sinned, he said he still wants to commit to them. Let me read it. Jeremiah 3, verse 6, it says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every tree and there played the whore? 
And I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me. And you guys still wait. Maybe she'll, you know, kind of have her fun and she'll want to come back to me. But she did not return. And it says, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. And stone and tree is making reference to idols. Committing adultery, spiritual adultery with idols made of stone and wood, worshiping other gods. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. You know how those, those lovers like that, they come back. And they say, I'm, 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 ready to, I'm, not, I'm ready to stop cheating. And you know, that, you know they're lying. You know they're lying. They're smiling and they look sincere. And you know they don't mean it. And this is what God is saying to Israel and Judah. You're smiling at me. You're laughing at me. And tonight, I know where you're going to spend the night. Ah, but what does God say? Verse 11, and the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless uh, children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And he still wants to marry us. And he still wants to marry us. We don't deserve to have a white dress. But he says, I'm going to give you one. I'm going to make you clean. I'm going to clean you myself, and you're going to be my bride. That's the forgiveness of trespass. But there's more. Because he doesn't just forgiveness. It says, according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. Because where sin abounds, Romans says, grace abounds. We may have been involved in spiritual adultery, but there's grace for us. We don't have to walk in shame. We don't have to hold our head down when we're with Jesus. We don't have to try, try to recall every way in which we have disappointed him, but he's got grace for us. It said, instead of wrath, God has poured out grace. God's grace is true wealth. That's why he calls it the riches of his grace. In fact, this is also a special reference to the culture of Ephesus because, uh, this, uh, because Ephesus, and I'm quoting, I, I, I'm quoting here from, uh, from, from a Bible commentary here, and I didn't put the reference here. I'll, I'll give it to you next week. But it says Ephesus was the leading city of the richest region of the Roman Empire. It had a thriving economy. And this was partly because of the religious cult worship of the good of the of, of, of Diana. This was the goddess that they worshipped. 
and there was a temple dedicated to her, which was also the major banking city for the city, and her, Im and her image was on the money. So in other words, there was a temple dedicated to her, and they turned it into a bank. And her image was on the coins. And, you know, there, there was all this festivity about her. And, and what Paul is saying as he talks about the riches of his grace, what he's saying implicitly is that he's comparing, to, he's comparing God, big G, Jehovah, with God, little g, Diana. You think Diana's rich? <laughs> you haven't met my father. If you think Diana could save you, you haven't met Jehovah. Now, she has her image on the money. God has his image on you. And he's so wealthy, he has enough grace that though you sin, though you disappointed him, though you transgressed, though you've committed trespasses, you can live as a righteous person because of the riches of his grace. God has more wealth. His people are literally the building materials for his temple. Diana has a temple, so what? God has a temple, and he's building it out of us, his righteous ones. We are his building blocks. We'll get into some of that in Ephesians 2. But, but he's, he's, again, when he's saying these things, there's the Ephesus culture that's there, and they know there's Diana. They know she has a temple. They know there's wealth there. But what's this wealth that Paul is talking about and this temple that he's talking about? It's different. We have a lavish supply of grace. In John 1.16, I like this. We're also looking at the book of John in our noon Bible study. It says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace literally means grace in place of grace. And this is, in a manner of speaking, what this means is that as one grace is exhausted, another grace takes it, its place. It's almost like when you go to a nice restaurant and you barely finish drinking your lemonade or your, or your water, whatever it is, and before you have a chance to even get a quarter of the way through, they're filling it up again. They're filling it up again. I mean, you, you never get left holding an empty glass, and that's what it's like with grace. Just when you think it's over, there's more grace. Just when you think you've messed up so bad, God can't save you. There's more grace. 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 He, lav he gives us a lavish supply of grace. Let's continue. So we talked about the redemption. We talked about the forgiveness. Let's talk and we talk about the wealth, which is our wealth and grace. Let's talk about the wisdom. Why we're wise. It says in all wisdom and insight. I don't understand why God loves us so much. I don't understand why he goes through all the things he goes through to save us. But it doesn't have to make sense to me. And, and I say that because God's wisdom is so advanced that it is counterintuitive. Why would you marry a whore? Oh, because the love of God defies reason, defines human reason. Isaiah 55, 9 through 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I like to say it like this, God's wisdom is so high that it seems low. You ever hear a dog whistle? 
Those dog whistles, you can, I, I, I should have brought one today. You blow it with all your might. Your human ears won't hear it, but the dogs will hear it, and you'll think nothing's going on. But really, it's just a high sound, way beyond your human perception. That's God's wisdom. God's wisdom is so right that it seems wrong. 1 Corinthians 1.25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's wisdom exceeds our understanding. So, so we've got to understand that this plan that God has for us, him dying on the cross, him forgiving us, it doesn't match the way that human beings think. He has all wisdom and insight. Let's continue, Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. These are the next couple of verses in this chapter. So I'm going to focus here on making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Let me focus on this word mystery. I'm going to quote from Jack Hayford here. He says, today, the word mystery refers to the unknown or that which only a Sherlock Holmes-type mind can master. But in the New Testament, the Greek, the word mystery or mysterion means something almost the opposite. What it really means is a former secret now disclosed or open. So when you see mystery, you should see, in the Bible, you should see something that's hidden for you, not from you. It's a secret revealed. So the mystery of his will means the revealed secret of his will. He's letting you in on the secret. You know, I was just reading the book of John today, and Jesus was saying to his disciples, no longer do I call you my, 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 my servants, because a, a, a servant doesn't know what his master is thinking. Now I call you my friends. Remember when, 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 when God, uh, talking to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was about to destroy the city, he says, how can I do this and not tell my friend Abraham? God wants to share with us his intimate secrets, the mystery of his will, re secrets revealed to us about what he's trying to do. There are some things we can't know in this life, but there are things he does want to reveal to us in this life. And this secret is revealed in Christ. He said, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. The secret is revealed in Christ. So Christ is our connection to reality in its purest form. If you want to understand what's going on, you draw close to Jesus. You draw close to Jesus. It's, that's not just a religious thing to do, but God literally puts everything that, that he's doing, he puts Jesus as the focal point of it. And so every time you draw closer to Jesus, you're drawing closer to reality, to things as they really are. Those things you see on television or on social media, that, 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 that those things aren't things as they really are. Jesus represents things as they really are. Let's continue. As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let me unpack this a bit. 
So to unite all things in him. Here's the deal. The closer we draw to Christ, the more life makes sense. The more life makes sense. And I believe if you've been faithful with the fast, whatever you committed to, and you've been, uh, you know, seeking God in prayer and in the word, there are some things that have started to make sense to you that didn't otherwise make sense. Why? Because we're drawing closer to him. And you're saying, ah, ah, okay, okay, I see, right? It's all in Christ. Jesus connects all the dots. Jesus is the only one who ties everything together. God chose and predestinated us from a different physical dimension than the one we are in now. So when he, the reason why it doesn't make sense to us is, when, is because when God chose us and predestinated us, he was sitting in eternity. But we're sitting in time and space watching things unfold. But as we draw close to Jesus, who is both God and human, he's in eternity and time, he's our connection to God's plan for the world. Let me continue here. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go down to Ephesians chapter one verses, uh, Ephesians one and 11. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having be, been predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So in him we have obtained an inheritance, basically means that we've received the inheritance of the favored son. We've talked about that already. And then having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I want to talk a little bit about this. having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There is nothing that escapes God's plan. Nothing. And, you know, there's a lot of talk, certainly in the last few years, about, like, the Illuminati or whoever you think is actually running the world, whether you think that's some elite group of billionaires or whoever you think it is. And whether that's true or not true, let me tell you something. They've got nothing on God. The, <laughs> the Illuminati better not cross God. <laughs> that's all I got to say, right? Because, listen— and I like the way that, that Dr. A.R. Bernard puts it. He says, what God doesn't send, he uses. He uses. So at the end of the day, everybody works for God. Everybody works for God. Some do it willingly. Some do it not knowing they're being used. And it's interesting, if you look at the Old Testament Scripture, God doesn't just go in and attack the Canaanites. If you look at Scripture, he waits, the Bible says he waits until their iniquity is fulfilled. I, 
I can't just go in right now because they haven't done the most evil thing yet. You, talk, you see in the scripture, well, the Lord says the Lord is hardening Herod, uh, you know, Pharaoh's heart. He's waiting for the conditions to be such that he can uh, come in in a certain kind of way. He's waiting for the conditions to be such that he can bring the plagues. And I'm telling you right now, God is allowing the forces of this world to do what they're going to do. And they're going to become so arrogant they're going to become so full of themselves that one day they're going to attack the nation of Israel. A global force, the Bible says, is going to attack the nation of Israel. And when that happens, God's going to say, enough is enough. And the scripture tells us that Jesus is going to come back with a sword in his mouth and defeat the whole global force in a matter of minutes, probably seconds. Every He's, he's letting them... Do what they're going to do because he knows what he's going to do. And in the midst of that, he's preserving his people. So listen, I don't know what's going to happen next. It could very well be that all of this stuff about the vaccine, it could be very well be that it's setting things up for some kind of new world order. Fine. But guess what? God's in control. God's in control. He already told us what's going to happen. He gave us the script. He said, this is what they're going to do, and this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. They are no match for me. Psalms chapter 2 talks about how the nations, they, 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 they have vain imaginations, thinking they want to cast off their bond from having to submit to Jesus. And it says, if you read Psalms chapter 2, it says, and the father laughs at them. Going back to that movie with Denzel Washington, American Gangster, you know, playing Frank Lucas. And every time somebody would say something, like he'd have somebody, some kind of person that he knew had to submit to him. And then every now and again, they get a little arrogant and stuff. And he'd stop and say, <laughs> my man. <laughs> my man. <laughs> and after he laughed, he would thrash them. That's God. God saying, <laughs> my man. <laughs> And in Psalms 2 said, you better kiss the son lest you make him angry. Just like the, the Godfather says, kiss my ring, you better, you better kiss the son. I'm saying all that to say God is working through all of this, all of these choices that humanity is making that some, some of them are with his will, some of them are against his will, but he's working all of it. He's working all of it, just like the mafia. You know, in towns that the mafia or a gangster owns, that may be a, 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 a restaurant, that might be a cleaners, but really the mafia, you got to pay them a tax. <laughs> the mafia, you got to pay them a tax so that they won't come and shoot you up. In other words, the mafia is saying, this is my city. Yeah, that's the mayor. Yeah, that's the police. But this is my city. And that's what God is saying. You got a government. You got a business. You got this, but this is my earth. And right now I'm working behind the scenes and I'm working all these things together to align up with Jesus. So if you ever get confused, find Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, is where the clarity is. Wherever Jesus is, is where the peace is. Wherever Jesus is, is where the joy is. Whenever it gets crazy and you don't know what's going on, draw close to Jesus. Because he's the focal point to which everything is coming together.
that's a good place to invite you to draw closer to him. Whew. There's going to be a lot you're going to see unfold in 2021 and 2022 and 2023 and 2024. What's the key? Jesus. Jesus. And the word that God gave me this morning coming out of our fast, I'm going to talk about it more on Instagram, is the word steadfast. Whew. We've got to stay rooted in Jesus. And, and, and those disciplines that you are cultivating during the fast, don't stop them. That don't mean you have to do the fast for the whole year. It just means that that the intentionalities, the focus, the getting up to pray and to seek the Lord, folks, that's where we have to stay. Because the world's going to be, when they're going to they be Democratic, <laughs> and then they're going to have a Republican administration. You know how it goes. The pendulum goes back and forth. You're going to have different Supreme Court justices and different laws, and some you'll like and some you won't. But guess what's going to stay the same? Jesus. Jesus. So we have to be steadfast and immovable, focused on Jesus, because the Father is bringing all of reality into the person of Jesus. He's the one that's going to be left standing after all the dust is settled. So now I'm going to encourage you right now. Commit your life to the Lord. Say, Jesus, I, I submit to you. And you may be a person who's never said that, or you may have a, be a person who used to say that, but you don't say it anymore. Now's the time. Jesus, I submit to you. Jesus, you are my Lord. Fill me with your spirit that I can live a righteous life. That's a simple thing to say, but if you said it out of your heart and you believe it, and you have done that for the first time, or you are doing this again after a period of being away from God, I want you to text Zoe Sage to the number on your screen because we want to connect with you. We want to give you some resources. We want to connect you with people who've been right where you are, who are where you are, and, to, and so that we can collectively follow Jesus. Let's continue to keep our focus on the Lord. And with that said, today is a wonderful day. It is the day the Lord has made, and I hope that this Sunday you will continue to rejoice and be glad in it. God bless you, and I'll see you next week.